0: Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Searcy Institute Atrium program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on The Close Reads, talking about classical pedagogy. And then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric. Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic. And then from Wes Callahan, you can choose either The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to circeinstitute.com atrium. Again, that's circeinstitute.com atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi Wade on Classical Pedagogy, Andrew Kern on Classical Rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or Wes Callahan on The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. One more time, that link is circeinstitute.com atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are going to be discussing Zora Neale Hurston's "Their Eyes Were Watching God." This is our first episode on this book. We're going to talk about the first five chapters, or roughly the first fifty or so pages. And uh, before we get into that, Tim, Heidi, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks, David. How are you?
0: Top of the afternoon, David. (laughs) What What does it mean, top of the afternoon? Does that mean like? Roughly noon or something. What is the origin of that phrase?
2: But yeah, the phrase has um, all sorts of hints of energy and expectation as if we were just (laughs) beginning our afternoon. And while for me, it's nearing four (laughs) o'clock, while for you, it's nearing four o'clock, and while for Heidi, it's nearing two o'clock, I still feel the vigor and excitement looking forward to discussing this book with you two guys
0: well you are saying, in conclusion <laughs> no, no i'm just kidding you are saying it in a very um specific and um, measured measured cadence yes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so i i wonder if perhaps that cadence is not in keeping with the spirit of what you're trying to express it is Yes, it is. It's a seriousness
2: of what you're saying. I just wanted to bring the energy. I just wanted to bring the energy if I was like, man, you know, into the afternoon, I'm dragging here.
1: But measured tones, right? Like that's pacing.
2: That's pacing. If you
1: want the energy, you got to be.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I feel like I've kind of steered us off the main course.
1: I know I keep waiting for David to bring it back, but Yeah, I know. Oh, it's, know early in, it's too yeah.
0: early in the show to do that. David's like, it's so far We're just gone. Going thanks deeper to
1: Terry. That's yeah. what's happening. You, we need you, David. Mayday. Do you wanna
0: <laughs> do you wanna bring a particular energy or should we just move on?
1: Um, I'm just fine with following y'all's lead on this. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, as I said, we are here to discuss uh, Zora Neale Hurston's book, Their Eyes Were Watching God. This is a 1937 novel, considered a classic uh, an essential part of the Harlem Renaissance, although even within members of the Harlem Renaissance was uh, somewhat controversial, at least in terms of how people thought of its quality. Uh, Many of the other members of the Harlem Renaissance were enthusiastic about the themes that it explored, but didn't necessarily think that it was as good as some other people did and as it has since become uh, known. Reason, more recently, Time magazine included it in its 2005 list of the 100 best English language novels published since 1923 that's a mouthful but the point is in the last several decades since roughly the 80s it has taken on a sort of new critical new life within the critical sphere and is definitely considered one of the most essential novels of the 20th century and of american literature David, so do you know who in the harlem renaissance
2: didn't buy the quality of this book
1: Ralph Ellison. No. Uh, yeah, like they he he got like scathing reviews. Ralph no Ellison way. said the
0: book contained a quote, "blight of calculated burlesque." End quote. Uh, Richard Wright, who um, is, I think he would be considered. He might have been a little oh, yeah. after the Harlem Renaissance technically, but he didn't like it at all. In fact, he said, Miss Hurston seems to have no desire whatsoever to move in the direction of serious fiction. She can write, but her prose is cloaked in that facile sensuality that has dogged Negro expression since the days of Phyllis Wheatley. Her characters eat and laugh and cry and work and kill. They swing like a pendulum eternally in that safe and narrow orbit in which America likes to see the Negro live between laughter and tears, end quote. A couple other critics, uh, Otis Ferguson from The New Republic, he wrote, it isn't that this novel is bad that it deserves to be better uh huh. then of course there were uh, many people
1: with faint praise yeah, yeah. Right, right then of course
0: there were many who looked at it even at even at the time that said this is an essential book um i was reading a little bit about and this
1: mostly white it was yeah. mostly from yeah, yeah. the white press that liked
0: it huh. Huh. yeah in the 70s and 80s it became really beloved um alice walker loved it mm-hmm. uh henry lewis gates jr Uh, really was a key part of its um, emergence as as an essential part. And then I believe um, Alice Walker, there was somebody else who said it was uh, one of her, you know, most beloved, most beloved books. Do do we, I mean, do people look back at
2: Ellison and Wright's criticism as sort of like, like a family dispute? You know what I mean? Like, like, Hmm. Like person had kind of stepped into a family dispute about I don't know what African American novels were supposed to address or not address, and they like didn't like the themes and subjects it seems like right like reading this novel, it seems like the quality of the novel at this point is indisputable, and so surely Ellison and Wright had the ability to recognize that it was a work of high merit. And so it makes me think this is, I'm totally like, this is conjecture. I'm leaving the show with conjecture. What a great way to start. (laughs) It seems to me like maybe Ellison and Wright were kind of like, this was a family dispute between them and um, Hurston about what are the sorts of things that we are as black novelists going to write about. And it kind of took their eyes a little bit off the quality of the work. I don't know.
0: I mean, I think that there was definitely within the Harlem Renaissance and within, you know, many of these black writers who were trying to um, carve out space, not only for themselves, but black writers in general, I think that there was always a sort of sense of trying to figure out what it meant to be a black writer in America when they weren't, allowed to have well, when it was much harder, first of all, to get published. Second of all, to be considered, you know, on the same level with the Faulkner's and the Hemingway's and, yeah. and Fitzgerald's and the other, you know, the other writers that were, you know, sort of deciding what the American canon was going to be. Although I do think that the, the Harlem Renaissance came about at a really interesting time because in terms of the history of American letters, because it was so early in the 20th century and uh, the American letters were still relatively young compared to, you know, even French, but especially English literature. And so the Harlem Renaissance had a lot to say about what it meant to be an American writer. And it came, came along at the exact right time to help influence what, it, what the American canon looked like. So you mm. look at, you look at Ralph Ellison, you look at Richard Wright, you look at Zora Neale Hurston um, to say nothing of all the painters and musicians who were part of the Harlem Renaissance who were helping shape American art in general, and those writers were saying, "This is what American literature has been so far, but it's still relatively new. It's still evolving and changing, and we're going to throw, we're going to help along with Hemingway and Fitzgerald shape what the rest of the century is going to look like." And you can't—I mean, you—you can't even look at writers like I think, you know, the Philip Roths and the John Updikes and stuff like that without seeing their influence. And and O'Connor, the other Southern writers without seeing how they were influenced by writers like Hurston and Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of stylistic things we can talk about in this book. And of course there are the themes, which maybe we should just say at the top here, this is a book about an experience that neither, none of the three of us can really totally understand. Right. I mean, this is a, a novel about the tragedies and complexities and trauma of being a black American um, of being a black woman in America. And we're going to do our best to treat these characters with as much respect as we can um, while also recognizing that, you know, how, how do we want to put it? We, we can only go so far in terms of our sympathies and empathies towards these characters and towards this writer. So we're going to do our best to be respectful and to dive in. But we also recognize that we just we're limited. Um, it's intimidating. Yeah, it I is. I mean, for me, it's intimidating. I, I, when
2: we were talking about what books we wanted to read this year, because of all the things that have been going on in American culture in late 2020, we wanted to read African-American novelists. And I think at the same time, I, again, just speaking for me, I was kind of like, yeah, but it's kind of intimidating. I don't, I don't pretend to understand in a way that um, I would like, but the alternative is... not read african-american authors and that seems like the wrong the wrong alternative
0: and in particular we chose a couple of books this year you know through the help of listeners who voted like this was a book that came up a lot from our listeners in 2020 as we were thinking about 2021 uh, as a book that people wanted us to discuss and these are books not just by black writers but uniquely about the experience of being an african-american um and And we can look at the artistic elements of it, and we can we can dive into these characters and you know look at it the same we know we we don't know what it's like to live in Mexico or to be a cowboy, right so we have to use our we always have to use our imagination in almost all the books that we read to some degree or another, but when it comes to the experience um and the the complicated and sometimes traumatic experience of being a black person in America, you know that's the part that we're going to do our best um to, to imagine, but also we need to, we just want to say, we're going to be really respectful of that. And, um, and just say right off the bat that we know that we can only, that imagining can only take us so far into that experience. Um, Heidi, do you want to add anything?
1: Yeah. I'm so grateful for Zora Neale Hurston, for the Harlem Renaissance and for, because it, it's an act of trust, right? To place a story that's, uniquely about what it means to be a black American and give it to people like us. Right. And, (laughs) um, and so I'm very mindful of the honor of being able to read books like this and the posture of a student that it places us in. Um, And, you know, one of the phrases that's often bandied about in contemporary culture right now is do the work. Right. And this is, you know, reading books like this is one way of entering into a uniquely American experience that's, as you said, David, beyond our ability to fully enter, but we can, I'm just so grateful for books like this that invite us to share um, in a small way and and, and what that means. Mm. So it's an honor.
0: Tim, were you going to say something else? Mm. Okay. So there's a lot to discuss in these first five chapters. And, you know, we can talk about approaches to reading it. Um, we can talk about uh, the style and all that sort of stuff. But I want to ask you about this character first, because Janie Crawford is um, a, a memorable character. She shows up on lots of lists of most memorable heroines in, in American lit. And in these first five chapters, we are introduced to her in to, in some, via some very unique structural methods by Zora Neale Hurston. And then we're also, we get to know her. A lot happens to her in these first five chapters. And she introduces us to a lot of themes. So I wanted to talk about what makes her so memorable. And obviously we're going to see her continue to evolve and change as a character and a person. Um, and, and there's going to be a lot more to learn about her uh, and through her. But what do you think makes her so, so memorable, such a, a character that, you know, people keep returning to. And I, and I think for all of us, is this our first read? Mm-hmm. of this book mm-hmm. i read like samples of it in college but we did, it was one of those things where they don't make you read the whole thing <laughs> so mm-hmm. i'm semi-familiar with the the writing but not like actually with the novel so i think so for all intents and purposes it's the first time i've ever really read it but people have been coming back to it so as people who are reading it for the first time on our in our first impressions what do you think makes her so memorable honey what do you think
1: i think for me she is very memorable um, and I'll say at the outset that I I was when I bega- I was surprised by the character. I knew nothing about the novel. The only thing I've ever read by Zora Neale Hurston is some of her short stories, particularly one that's and anth- frequently anthologized called "Sweat." It's a stunning short story; like it's magical. So I had very high expectations for the novel, um, but I didn't know anything about it. Like, nothing. I didn't even have, like, you know, in the back of my head that it was about the story of a woman's life. I didn't even know that. And so, um, I was, especially after reading All the Pretty Horses, um, and then finishing the Border Trilogy in the last couple of weeks, I was a little bit thrown off by just like the shift the sudden shift from the you know intense masculine journey to the intense feminine journey like right. i was hit really hard not just by the f- fact that this is a novel about the black american experience but but this is also a novel about the female american experience what it means to be a woman in america in a very tumultuous time um and at a transitional time in american culture mm. uh for both uh Between both blacks and white, black and white culture, and also male and female culture at the beginning of the 20th century. And so I was really even more struck by the shift from masculinity to femininity. It felt really (laughs) sudden to me um, and really real, like very real as as a woman myself, I don't know if you guys know this, but I also am a woman. And um, I was struck just by the reality of this like glimpse into the inner world of, of a woman. It's felt very realistic, the longings. And I think what makes her very memorable to me is just the depth and the intensity of her longing. It reminds me of JGC and his like kind of desire for a big, bigger life, a, a mm-hmm. life beyond just what he has. And that is also in her. And, and characters with that intense longing are very compelling to memorable to me and could mm. grasp me.
0: It's, I, I was thinking how, interest, how, how many things those two characters have in common. Even right. The lack of parents essentially being raised by a grandparent type figure in both cases. Um, by the time the novel begins, they're more or less, like before, as the novel really gets going, they're more or less on their own. You know, it's a, in that way, you know, it, it's a, certainly a coming of age novel, at least at least at the beginning, much like mm-hmm. All the Pretty Horses. Right. You know, what's interesting about
2: the beginning of this book is that Janie is, for the most part, um, we see her. She's kind of a blank slate at the beginning. So the very first chapter, we don't hear from her we hear about these women from the town who are all telling us the way that she is. Mm -hmm. Right. And they resent her and they're gossiping about her. And when the end of chapter one rolls around, we learn like, okay, Janie is going to tell us about herself, but chapters two, three, four, and five, Janie's telling about herself is largely through her she's defined by her relationship to these other three characters nanny and then her first husband logan and their second husband joe so she's she's an interesting character but at this point she is being defined by these relationships that she's in she's almost Mm -hmm. um a cipher not like in that secondary meaning like a um she's a like a placeholder yeah and this book is going to be clearly is going to be about her it's not just going to be her as narrator but i for me at this point in the novel she is um she's she's becoming a person that's kind of what i'm wondering if this novel is going to be about her becoming a person we get a little bit of it at the end of is it chapter three where she realizes, when she realizes like, I'm a woman. It's this definitive kind of step that she makes after leaving Logan and getting with Joe. Something mm-hmm. changes inside of her. And so again, like having not read this book, having heard about it, like we both ha- like we all have, mm-hmm. I'm we're still kind of figuring out what's what is exactly this tale that's going to be told here? And I wonder... I'm speculating for the second time, like 15 minutes in, if this is going to be a story of Janie. We're setting things up, man. Yeah. If this is going to be a story of Janie um, kind of no longer being a person who is defined by these relationships that she's in. I don't know, but that's kind of what I wonder we might be Like the the individual self-emerging? Yeah, maybe the individual self-emerging. Because again, like in these first chapters, we see her through everybody else's eyes. But what's really interesting is there are these asides where um, they're like these raptures of nature that we cut to, like this really beautiful narrative writing in which Mm -hmm. Janie – sees a tree and there's something about the flourishing of the tree that she identifies with also. And as far as I recall, those are the only moments where we kind of get a glimpse of this nascent um, personhood or womanhood. So much of it, the rest of it is it's conversation and she's kind of a listener.
0: It's interesting. It reminded me of um, Faulkner in a lot of ways, like at the, in The Sound and the Fury or uh, Light in August where he sort of creates he uses the structural decisions that he's making to create this mystery around the characters and so you have to kind of unravel the narrative devices that he's using and all the different layers of of um storytelling the origins of the narrative they're all layered together and you have to kind of unpack that to get to know the character and because those layers are all there it creates a sort of mystery Mm -hmm. for us as the reader because we're trying to figure out well who's saying what when what's real what's maybe memory when are they saying this which part is which is their story which is our narrator you know she's combining first person narrative with this like indirect discourse so all the different layers of that create almost like a wall between us and the character where this character is intriguing the bits and pieces of this puzzle make it clear that this character is really intriguing and memorable but it takes getting we have to kind of settle into that narrative structure before we can that that whole picture of the character can begin to emerge I love what you said, David. There's a wall in
2: Faulkner. I think Faulkner is like especially gifted at this. There's a wall between what's happening outside and what's happening inside the narrator. And we try mm-hmm. to get over the wall. That's part of mm-hmm. reading Faulkner. For me, this book feels a little bit differently. It, doesn't, it It doesn't feel like I'm trying to get over a wall to understand who Logan is or who Nanny is or who Joe is. It's almost like I'm trying to understand who our narrator is because she's along for the ride, you know, like, especially with Logan and Joe, she knows she's kind of figuring out how she feels, but I don't know. She, she's, she is not defined yet. And so it's not a getting over a wall to the outside characters. It's kind of like getting over a wall to the inner person that Janie is. Are you reading it the same way, Heidi? The the obstacle that I'm describing it. Yeah, I think you're
1: right. This is a book about the development of the self. It's a very American novel, and it's and and this idea of who. The coming, the becoming of the self in a very internal sense against the obstacles of being silenced or being objectified or whatever. It's a very, very, uh, that lends itself to a central female character. And so I think that the, The development of the masculine self in American letters is a bit different than the development of the feminine self within American letters. And this is a very feminine novel in the sense that she's continually trying to figure out her feelings and what she wants versus what is expected of her um, by society or what will protect her. That's Nanny's big thing, right? How can you be protected? How can I shelter you from men who will use you so you don't become like your mama? Um, But, of course, that is at the expense of Janie's selfhood, as you're pointing Mm. out, um, Mm. because she's not allowed to then fall in love or wait for anything, right? She's pushed into this marriage with Logan Killens that she doesn't want, um, but it's being done, at least it's claimed to be done for her own good and for her own protection. And so we get to see from the very beginning that this is a woman who is, um, she's too young to know herself. She's only 16 when we really meet her Um, and she's obviously 16 year old Janie is very different from 40 year old Janie that we meet at the very beginning Um, that and so we're left with this question of how did this naive young girl this ingenue Become a woman who's flouting public opinion and walking through, wearing overalls while people are ta- talking about wanting other women are talking about wanting to bring her down, and she owns her own story, right? And so the question is how do we go from this to that? Um, which I think is going to be the primary narrative arc of the novel. Um, and And so I like what you're saying the uh, the the structure lends itself to that development of herself do
0: you find the so the the first chapter is this like third person narrator and throughout we sometimes go back to that character that narrator that voice but then sometimes we're in the story so we're getting the dialogue of the characters within the story and then sometimes there's that middle ground where it seems to be Janie Telling, going back and telling the story, so there's three different ways of looking at point of view or the narrative structure. Do you find that disorienting? Going back and forth,
2: there were a couple times at the end of um, Nanny's death is a shift from this conversation between Nanny and Janie, and then we get a paragraph and. The paragraph concludes with, um, was it a month later, Nanny dies. Yeah,
0: she threw herself on the bed sideways. And yeah, then yeah, later yeah, She yeah. was dead.
2: And I was, I was a little bit jarred by that because I, if I recall correctly, before the conversation between the two of them, we were, as readers, kind of, we were with Janie. And mm-hmm. then we kind of shift with shift to now we're with Nanny and, and Janie is out of the room. And then we go back to... Janie yeah. and it was jarring or for the narrator a, or the narrator. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Cause or there's the things that the narrator tells us that there's no way Janie could have ever known, but Janie's the one telling the story to her friend.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I mean, unless Janie was told them by somebody, the,
2: the narrator, another juxtaposition, Heidi, between this book and um, all the pretty horses, all the pretty horses is f- the narrator is, it seems like in a pretty fixed position. You know, you can kind of all, you always know where the narrator is. And sometimes the narrator may press into the starry skies, may press into John Grady Cole a little bit, but there's a fairly fixed perspective. It seems like our narrator in this book shifts. Um, Sometimes she is just, our narrator is just eavesdropping on this conversation Sometimes she is really close to Janie and she can hear Janie's thoughts and especially she can hear Janie's thoughts about like these kind of evocations of the splendor of the natural world. And sometimes I found this really interesting. The narrator, the narrator moralizes a little bit like even the first it, maybe, maybe moralizing is not the right word, but the philosophizing of the book.
0: Yeah. philosophizing. I was going to ask you word. about the beginning. I think we yeah. definitely talk
2: about that. Um, and I found that really interesting. She in, in the paragraph in which nanny dies, she moves into that philosophical role and she kind of makes comments about the nature of knowing. So yeah. I'm interesting to see how that continues. And um, Zora Neale Hurston doesn't seem to bat an eye between moving between these different positions. Does it throw you off, Heidi, the the kind of shift to position of the narrator?
1: I love it. Yeah. I love it so much. That's not what he I, asks so, you. <laughs> I, does it throw me off? No, I love it. It's, I mean, Zora Neale Hurston is known, like, the primary thing she's known for is writing in dialect, right? So that's, and, and she's one of the only, African-American novelists who writes in such heavy dialect that it takes deciphering in order to read it. Um, And, and she juxtaposes that with this like beautiful poetic prose. And I just love that. I love that. So I'm listening to the novel. If, if anybody's finding it hard to read it, I am listening to it on audible. Are y'all are either of you? I've done both. Yes.
2: Are then, you listen? Is it um?
1: It's Ruby D. Ruby Dean. It is, oh, Ruby
2: Lee. Oh my gosh.
1: Ruby D. And she's excellent. It's beautiful. She's reading it just so beautifully, um, mm-hmm. and so. And then I also went back and just read it because I like to read Zorniel. I like to read the dialect, and I was so struck in read. Like I loved listening to it a lot, and then I. Then I went back and read it just real quickly before we jumped on the air, and I I was struck by reading it between the contrast with the dialect and just the beauty of the prose mm. and how it's like multiple times on a page. I just loved that. I I think it it is a bit jarring, but it's jarring in a good way. Jarring in a way that makes the beauty of the prose stand out on the page um, and adds, I think, a a depth. Uh, um, to the to the dialect that's just conversation, right? Um, now, Zora Neale Hurston was an anthropologist by training. That was her academic training. And so, she did a, a, a lot of anthropological research on cultural roots of Black America. She'd studied... Caribbean cultures and African cultures and how all of those kind of, and the folklore specifically and how the folklore wove into the daily life of black Americans. Um, and so writing in dialect to her was a very intentional choice in order to show the full richness and depth of the culture. Um, and she didn't want to make it easy on, White people to read it. She didn't. She was told multiple times, "Simplify this. It's too hard for white people to read your books." And she's like, "I'm not writing it for them. I'm writing it to talk about my culture and this culture." And so it was a bold decision on her part. It cost her some things, Um, and I just think it's really. I, I love it. I think it's honoring. I love having to kind of work for it. But if you want to hear how it sounded, I just think that the audio book is really an important thing to do because then you can, you're not just reading it the way we would talk, but the way it would have been spoken. Um, and I, I think that that even that contrast uh, between the dialect and the beauty of the prose is like that kind of glorious jarring to me mm. to answer your question. Like, I just think it's lovely and really thoughtful and intentional on the part of the author.
2: Before we leave Ruby D the narrator of the audiobook, Oh my goodness, she's so good in this audiobook. And she is an, was an American actress. She plays Ruth Younger in A Raisin in the Sun. She has a role in Do the Right Thing. And I'm hoping that we'll do A Raisin in the Sun at some point on the show. I really hope we'll do that. I just want to give accolades to the audiobook, I think it's really one of the best kind of narrative performances of a novel that I've heard in a long time. It's really
0: excellent. I think she did it when she was in her eighties too. No way.
1: Yeah. She died in in 2014.
0: She was 91. Yeah. Oh, wow. Just, yeah, she's awesome. Um, I was going to ask a question, forgot what it was once we got onto the, the Ruby D thing there. (laughs) hijacked us about. No, 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 it was great. I mean, she deserves the, uh, the, Whatever accolades, we can accolades give her right here on the podcast. So let's talk about that beginning. Um, uh, because it's not the only time that we get this what what for the sake of conversation we'll call philosophizing, um, where we're outside of Janie's um point of view and her own narrative about her life. And I feel like that's worth discussing in this first episode because we're gonna be getting deeper and deeper into her story as we go. But I think discussing how we approach this philosophizing, which is outside of the narrative by a third person narrator who's the one that's going to deliver us into Janie's narration, which is to her friend and into those scenes. So it's like, there's three levels on the outside. There's our third person narrator who could sometimes, who sometimes philosophizes. And then we've got Janie's first person narrative where she's sometimes f- sort of philosophizing in her own way. And then we've got our we get inside her story. It's like net Russian, Russian nesting Russian dolls uh, in terms of how she tells the story. So if we look at the most exterior Russian nesting doll. Um, this philosophizing third person narrator. I don't really know any other question, but to ask, how do you, how do you read? How do you approach this philosophizing that happens at the beginning of the book ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. It says, Is she like, I mean, so a couple, there's a couple options. It seems to me she that this third person exterior Russian nesting doll is like a Shakespearean chorus or something. And there, Mm. by the way, this book does seem very Shakespearean, even the way you talked about the dialect, Heidi combined with this, this other prose, it it reminds me of the way Shakespeare uses verse and prose um, for different kinds of characters and to mean different things about characters and things like that. So it seems like she perhaps was, well read in shakespeare so on the one hand maybe this philosophizing third person narrator acts as our chorus what do you think of that theory and of course choruses are they go way before shakespeare they're in greek drama and so forth too yeah tim as the uh local dramatist among us what do you think of that theory
2: i like the theory i like the theory i would lean toward um a more Shakespearean chorus than a Greek chorus. The difference for me being when I think of a Greek chorus, I think oftentimes of um, that group of people that not only helps tell the story, but also articulates the kind of community's values and convictions. So when... Odysseus, excuse me, when uh, Oedipus starts to kind of discover who he is, the chorus is not only saying the story of Thebes and of Oedipus, but it's also kind of standing up for the morals and the values of the city of Thebes. So it kind of has this Hmm. dual role. I don't see Shakespeare's chorus playing the same role. I think Shakespeare's chorus oftentimes is it's just kind of telling the story. It's and not it's doing saying this is. Both these are ends. the
0: theme, themes that the rest of the story are going to explore.
2: Yeah, right, right, right. But there's not much like moralizing from a Shakespeare choral character. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little bit, not much. I I wonder if the kind of chorus um, mode from our narrator is less concerned with telling the story less concerned with articulating the morals and values of the community and most inclined to kind of help us explore what's going on with Janie kind of like to provide here are choices that Janie is going to face. So do you guys mind, actually, I wonder if Heidi, it'd be better if Heidi read maybe the first couple of paragraphs of the book because it seems like we're being provided options about the kind of decisions that Janie is going to face in her life.
1: Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide for others. They sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation. His dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So I read this. I like the chorus. I really do like the chorus thing. As soon as you said that, I'm like, Oh yeah, it is like a chorus. Um, I read it also as an invitation to see that the book is inviting us to look beyond the story into kind of a wider reality, um, more of like a cosmology, right? Like mm. she's making a statement about life. The man's journey is this, the woman's journey is this. And and also then, so that's what she's saying, right? The first paragraph, this is a man's journey, the second paragraph, but this is what a woman is like. This is the internal world and life of women. And I think it's true. That's true for me. What she says here is different than what she says in the first paragraph. And I relate to what she says about women. And then she says, so the beginning of this was a woman, right? So she's saying here, I'm making a statement about a male and female journey to the self, right? And then, and, and, and then she's like honing in on a specific woman in order to illustrate this, Here was Janie, right? And we don't know it's Janie yet, but she's going from the universal to the specific very clearly in those first three paragraphs.
0: So in the first paragraph, let's, if we can break it down a little bit. So she has this statement at the beginning, ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. So there's a universal concept, she says, every man's wish is on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon. His dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. And then it says, now women forget all those things. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So, in the first paragraph, when she says "ships at a distance have every man's wish on board," is she talking about men as in like the gender, or is she talking using men there you more universally in that first sentence? You're muted, Heidi.
1: Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> um, I thought when I first read it, she was just using men generally, but she contrasts it right in the. Last sentence. And then the first sentence of the next part, that is the life of men. Now women. And I I thought that was really good. I liked that. I thought it was fascinating because I thought she was just saying humanity, but it turns out she's actually talking about men and she's making it clear from the beginning. I'm writing a book about a woman and I'm writing a book about a woman from a woman's perspective. This is going to be a feminine journey, an archetypal, archetypal feminine feminine journey, journey. That's what we are on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I read it the same and- way as you, Heidi. I read it at the beginning as this is, a, this is a common statement for all humanity. And I wonder if she's pulling a little sleight of hand. Because in 1937, I think any book that begins with the word, carry all men's hopes aboard, you know, whatever, is going to be read as a categorical statement for all humanity. And then she does this pivot in, in paragraph two. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like all people. I was talking about men. And let me tell you what this book's going to be about. It's going to be about women. I I think that was very deliberate. I think it was like kind of a
0: sleight of hand move. So so she says, for some men, his dreams are mocked to death by time. That's the life of men. And then she says, the dream... Now women forget all those things, and the dream is the truth. So what's the dichotomy? Like what is she, what's what is she trying to say there? Some men, their dreams are mocked to death, so the dreams die. Well, f- for women, the dream is the truth. It's interesting that she used, She seems to be equating the truth with life by negation there. So I'm. Mean, I, right. you know? This is all like. Like I said, she's philosophizing. So what is she setting us up to think about? Like what questions is she wanting us to ask here at the beginning?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. And it does function these, then these first two paragraphs function a, like a prologue, like an epic prologue. They tell us then what are we going to be wrestling with? We're going to be wrestling with what it's what the death of a dream and a metaphorical journey and memory, and truth, and agency, right? What we have with Janie is a a woman that we see from the very beginning is both an agent and an object of desire. And how she navigates that is part of the archetypal feminine journey. I'll just say that as a woman. That to be both an agent and an object of desire in a man's world is part of the feminine development of the self. Mm. And and no woman can escape that question. And that is core, I think, to this novel. And and we see that from the beginning. And we know that this is going to be a, a story about loss and a story about um grief and a story about dreams and a story about someone who's going to builds their own dream and see it as truth and have that be core mm. to, to their development.
2: That was really powerful. That like, thanks Tim that like turned a light on for me. That was really helpful. Thank you. What did the light reveal to him? Well, it was just, you know, an object and, and, an agent as the feminine journey that, that just, that really makes a lot of sense to me. And it makes a lot of sense of this book also. And, and it seems like right now in the book, we are, she is in the object phase. Mm-hmm. But, but, but what's so great is that the first chapter is we really, at least for me, um, when she comes back into town, she is not an object. She has agency. But all the, all the kind of chattering class in her town they are treating her as an object, but she walks in and she walks in proud, you know, mm-hmm. like she's clearly been through enough life and made enough decisions that she's now an agent. Um, but then right after chapter one, this kind of prologue begins, she is all object. So I think that's part of the reason why at least I feel like th- we know where she's going to end up. She's going to end up as an agent Um, how does she move from object? You know, Nanny, she's an object for Nanny. Nanny needs to protect her. She's an object for Logan. Logan, you know, for Logan, she is the dutiful wife. For Joe also, she's kind of the dutiful wife of a very different sort. So how is she going to move? Yeah, yeah. symbol is a great way of describing it. How is she going to move? It's very dissatisfying. Both for like- her relationship to Nanny, to Logan, and to Joe, in all three cases, she's dissatisfied. So what's going to take her to this place that we see at the beginning
0: of the book where she's Mm. an agent? Well, and it strikes me that one of the things that she most can't understand is the notion of desire and how it plays into everything. So she has these like longings and wants to, she says she wants to want, which one was it?
1: I don't want him to do all the want yeah I don't right? want him to do yeah, all
0: the want yeah. Yeah. I don't remember which husband that was
1: that's about that was Logan about I think her first one. Logan.
0: Yeah. Um, and so she's trying to and, and we get in that her one of her first things that she remembers is the the pear tree right this mm-hmm. metaphor for desire and longing and becoming a, her grandmother says that it's evidence of her becoming a woman. Right. Um, and it leads her to kiss that guy at the gate, um, which is what sets everything in motion in her life because nanny kind of panics. Um, maybe not, maybe rightly, I mm-hmm. don't know, but, um, right. that seems to be up for <laughs> debate, but the question of how desire plays into her agency is seems to be the big question that she's trying to, to explore. Um, We talk about duty and desire all the time, right? That's your pet thing. Maybe this is another book you should add to your book about duty and desire.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So it's just that's just an interesting
0: thing. Like it's it's clear that she's trying to understand when she's young how does how do the desires that I have and the desire to have desire play into play into her role and play into Mm -hmm. that transition from, you know, desired object to woman with agency right like that might be one of the big questions the book is asking us to ask like, what does it mean to for desire to play a role in our own agency yes
1: i think so because i think for for anybody this is probably i mean this is also true for men but it's i think i would i can go out of limits saying it's probably more true for women that it the idea of just throwing off ever being an object of desire is to cut oneself off from love right because so you have to figure out how to be both and this is the thing she wants so much she wants love that's she wants to be loved she, that like i loved the pollen image right this like um this like dusting of sexuality over everything and how it like illuminates her eyes and it makes her see the world differently and see johnny taylor the boy she kissed at the gate differently um like this awakening this that pollen covering everything is like this awakening of her sexuality and and in doing that the first thing she wants is to be desired like and to and to fulfill her own so for part of the archetypal feminine journey it seems to me is to figure out how to be both an agent and an object of desire in a way that is nourishing to the self into the soul into the world around us and when that is united then with the duty of marriage which is what she's wanting then that becomes like fruitful for the world then you can have children you could build a home and all these things but she also just from the very beginning has no true voice and that I think is manifest the shows really clearly even with nanny who loves her the very most like everything she asks of nanny nanny refuses and she's doing it because she's trying to protect her but because this world has been so hard because not only is she a woman but she's a black woman in the south in jim crow south like this is a a woman who and this is a, a character who is representative of multiple marginalized and oppressed cultures and groups and so that that I think but she she also has this strength in her in this beauty of soul that and this longing for a rich and fulfilling life and how are all those things going to fit together in the life of this woman everything feels so precarious to me right now and early it
2: did you guys find it when I think back about nanny like in one level I really respect nanny. You know, she's, she, she wants to toughen Janie up Um, and she's kind of like full of like these wisdoms and these, this kind of like, I don't know. There's a realism in nanny. And on the Mm. other hand, she seems to think, okay, you're married to Logan. Now my work is done here. You're all safe. And I'm like, nanny, I mean, has the, come on, this is, I mean, maybe she just thinks that Janie is the sort of woman who is just going to be content to just be a wife that's kind of materially provided for. It it just surprised me that that, that nanny was in a way so, um, such a realist in another way She's kind of. She struck me as being really naive with regards to Janie's capacity to be satisfied with Logan.
0: Well, what I was just about to say when I spoke over you is one of the things that was so striking to me is the the way there's this there's a generational voicelessness. Mm -hmm. Nanny didn't have any agency or voice her mother ended up not having any agency or voice. And so then Janie also, she's not just fighting against her own conditions, but a sort of blight of generational voicelessness, um, like a plague of it or whatever, that, that is also constricting, constricting her. Um, it's not just the circumstances into which she was born, into which she lives, but it's the burden of her mother and her grandmother and her great grandmother and so forth going back. um, That is also that she's also bumping up against. And that's a great point. On the one hand, Nanny is trying to protect her from potential trauma that she could get herself into. And that could be inflicted upon her. If, if she doesn't watch out because both Nanny and Janie's mother experienced that trauma that they got themselves into, because they weren't aware of what was happening, but primarily that was inflicted upon them. And like 99% of it was inflicted upon them. And it seems like she's trying to protect her from that. And in protecting her from that, the, the it's traumatic in and of itself that you have to be protected from that because in protecting someone from that, you almost by necessity, diminish their ability to have a voice in the face of that generational voicelessness. You in trying to protect her, she's adding another form of constriction, which is not a fault on Nanny's part. It's the trauma of that generational voicelessness at work inflicting, you know, another level of trauma because the generations themselves by, by feeling like they need to protect you from that voicelessness, keep you in that voicelessness. Okay. Um, that's, you know, not nanny has all these virtues, but the, tr- the, 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 the sins of the father, so to speak. And I don't mean her mother and her grand, I mean, the sins of the culture at large, past generations, past generations right. are causing them to inflict that constrict, those constrictions upon one another. And that's like the great, another level of the great tragedy of the whole thing. Right. Uh, trying to work through that in my head as I was saying it. So I can I read, can I read a section from yeah. um, Nanny
2: top of 16? She's talking of course to Janie, um, you know, honey yes, colored folks as branches without roots. And that makes things come round in queer ways. You in, in particular, I was born back due in slavery. So it wasn't for me to fulfill my dreams of what a woman ought be and to do. That's one of the holdbacks of slavery but nothing can't stop you from wishing that to me um, Nanny saying that she, it seems like on the one hand, she wants for Janie to fulfill her dreams of what a woman ought being to do. And, but I think for Nanny, the kind of fulfillment of that is it's getting married. It's getting married to someone like Logan
0: he's going to keep you safe. It's almost, it's like, so go ahead, David, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say in part, because she realizes the constrictions of the culture of, of the cultural structures. So she's trying to say, given what we have here, we need to protect you. This is what best you can hope for. Right. 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 But that, but in, in telling her that this is the best you can hope for, it's also the fact that she is forced that she feels like she's forced to tell her that is also constricting the dreams that Janie feels like she can have. Right. Like she's yeah. trying to get her to see the world in a realistic way, which is to which is inherently to say the dreams that you have for yourself are not going to come true. If you, yeah. if you dream too big, you're screwed. Go ahead, Heidi.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read this uh, section on page 14 along with that. Now there are words in this paragraph I'm not going to say, so yeah. I'm going to say black, not the word that's used here. <laughs> Um, so she's nanny's just slapped her in the face and then lifted up her head and and held her, which I think is here's here here it goes. Someone's gonna win bingo today. That's an objective correlative, right? We have nanny inflicting violence upon her and then holding her in the same moment, which is exactly what this entire conversation is doing to Janie's in her life, hmm. right? And she says, "Come." To, and then after slapping her and then holding her, she says, come to your grandma, honey, setting in her life like, like you used to. Your nanny wouldn't harm a hair of your head. She don't want nobody else to do it, neither if she can help it. Honey, the white man is the ruler of everything as far as I've been able to find out. Maybe it's someplace way off in the ocean where the black man is in power, but we don't know nothing but what we see. So the white man throw down the load and tell the black man to pick it up. He pick it up because he have to, but he don't tote it. He hand it to his woman folks. The black woman is the mule of the world. As far as I can see, I've been praying for it to be different with you. Lord, Lord, Lord. Like this is, this is the matriarch of an oppressed culture, right? Like she's doing the very best she can, but in doing it, she has to silence and oppress Janie. And so she's, she is in an impossible situation trying to do the best she can. And in doing that, she's essentially slapping Janie in the face, silencing her, doing exactly what these men are going to now do to her. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up perpetuating the cycle she's trying to break, but what other choice does she have? And I think that's why when we read these novels as privileged people, we have then the opportunity to enter into that and say like, oh my gosh, this is what it's like. Like that's, and as, as a woman, I can understand some of it, but I can't understand the full depth of it. And that, I mean, my, I think that's what stories, this is one of the purposes of stories. This is one of the reasons we need to be reading books like this because man, what else is Nanny to do? it is an impossible choice for her.
0: Mm -hmm. And she has the, she has the added uh, context of what, of her daughter. Yep. And so that that, also
1: knowing she's about to die.
0: Right. She knows she can't be around for her for much longer. She knows what her own daughter lived through and she's trying, she has to make the tough choice. And no matter what choice she makes, she's opening Janie up to some sort of terrible, the likelihood of some sort of terrible experience. And so it's like, she's saying choosing the lesser of two evils. And in a way that's like the whole, that's like the thing about this larger cultural sin, right? That it forces people to choose the lesser of two evils in order just to survive. It's not about Mm -hmm. flourishing. It's about choosing the lesser of two evils. So you don't get destroyed. And that's, that's the tragedy that's the that's the trauma of of a culture that is broken that that has mm-hmm. sacri- that has that has looked at people as not people that that has that's said right. the, the there is no humanity the, the, that has diminished the humanity of a whole segment of its people like right. the greatest sin there is pretty much
1: that's exactly right. And it doesn't heal in one generation. And I think that's the, we see Janie as in a transitional generation. We no longer have slavery, right? Mm-hmm. And, but Nanny Nanny was a slave and she was an enslaved person. And then the next generation was not. And then we have then the third generation with, with Janie, but she's still living in the wound of that because that doesn't heal in a single generation. Because as we're seeing in this novel, Zora Neale Hurston is telling us through nanny that this is this is a trauma that goes from one generation to the next and so J- nanny is perpetuating the cycle that she wants to break right she wants janie to be free so she just wants to marry her off and keep her safe and, and on the, does it
0: work on the one hand it seems like she would love to be able to treat like there's this there's this notion that you could treat janie as an abstraction and you could say For the greater good, this is how we should teach our children to live and to speak and to act and the kind of courage we want them to have to break free of the chains of this generational thing. But she can't view Janie. She can't view her granddaughter as an abstract being that can go out there and try to break down these chains. She has to view her as this little girl who she wants to do the best she can. And so she has to choose the lesser of two evils because of that. Janie is not an abstraction. She is an individual person, and and that's that's what makes so that's what makes this book complicated. On the one hand, we have the this girl, this individual person who's trying to carve a life out for herself, and on the other hand, we have these big ideas that we want these characters to be able to fight against. But when they fight against them, it's going to cost them something, and not just themselves, mm-hmm. but everyone around them. Tim, were you, were you going to say something? Well, I, part
2: of the reason. I, I'm really interested in what is going to happen with the character of Joe, because in a lot of ways, Joe is not playing according to like the white man's superstructure. He goes in, in chapter five, chapter four, I guess, in chapter five, and he's setting up a town and he's making money and he's buying and selling and he's organizing. And so in a way, Things are be- we're beginning to see like changes within the African American communities. Opportunities are being are are presenting themselves, but our main character Janie is even on the outside of that. She's a symbol. She's a showpiece. She's a trophy wife. That's what she is for Joe. And so I'm really curious what's going to happen in chapters six, seven, eight with this relationship because in some ways it's a continuation for Janie of her relationship with Logan. Joe has more money, he has more prestige, he has more clout, but still Janie is kind of confined to this particular role. And we can already tell it's dissatisfying. So where is it gonna go next? I'm really curious to know.
0: Yeah, one of the things it seems to like she's trying to also figure out is should she be dissatisfied? Yeah, right. And, like, I think as readers, we say, well, yeah, this doesn't, this seems off. We knew right away with the first guy that it was off. This next right. one seems off too, but we're not sure exactly how or why. Maybe she shouldn't be so dissatisfied because, and she's trying to figure that out for herself. Hey, Heidi, as we wrap this up, because we do need to go here in a second, what are you looking for in, in chapters six through 10, which is what we'll be reading for next week?
1: I am looking for further revelations of the dynamic between her and Joe and how that is going to impact the story. I expect it's gonna get kind of dark. That's my expectation. As soon as he starts shushing her, I don't I didn't marry no woman so that she could give speeches. That I mean there were some clues before then that you know the dressing her up like a doll, the presentation of my beautiful wife. Like there are some clues before that indicated that this isn't an equal marriage, but that, I mean, you put that in a novel on purpose. I think things are going to get dark. That's what I'm looking for.
0: Tim, you just said something. Do you want to add anything else? Yeah. I just, I think you're right.
2: I think Heidi's exactly right. Joe Starks is so much more powerful than Logan and he's, he's driving forward and for Janie to dissent, it's not going to go well. It's got to get dark. I just wanted to point out one thing on page 28, a kind of stylistic choice that Hurston makes, top of 28. That second full paragraph, it's so interesting that it's not in quotes. I'll read it in a second, or I'll read part of it in a second. It's not in quotes, but it's kind of in the voice of Joe Starks. So this is kind of soon after... Uh, Joe and Janie have met, Janie and Joe have met. And we're kind of figuring out who Joe is. And second full paragraph, Joe Starks was the name. Yeah, Joe Starks from up and through uh, Georgie. Been working for white folks all his life. Saved up some of his money, around $300. Yes, indeed, right here in this pocket. Keep hearing about them building a new state down here in Florida and Wanted to come. Wanted to come. It's so interesting because, right? It's in Joe Starks kind of cadence. It's this kind of like, He's hustling and he's telling you that he's hustling and this is who he is. But it's in the, it's from the narrator's voice, I guess, technically. Mm -hmm. And it's in, after that, when Joe speaks, it will be in quotes, but it's almost as if Janie is sort of absorbing this new voice voice in her or the narrator is kind of like maybe enforcing this new voice Mm -hmm. in her. It's not just straight reporting, you know, it's not just in quotes, this is what Joe Stark said. It's like his voice is being, is through the voice of the narrator. And so it's given even more power um, portent Mm -hmm. than if it had just been in straight up quotes. Mm thought that was a
0: really interesting this, like, shift. That was a great move. Gradual shifts from voice to voice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What about you, David?
0: Uh, well, I didn't think about that before I asked the question. Um,
1: just got to throw you. Well, some I was going to say,
0: somewhere. I'm interested in um, what Tim's talking about there. Does, does that gradual shift from voice to voice? does it mark something that we're supposed to recognize? Does it keep happening? Yeah. Is it it going to be a pattern or less when it happens? Are there consistencies to, to themes or scenes or the way we get to know characters or something like that? That's one thing that I was thinking about that I'll be looking for. Uh, So.
1: I have one more. Go ahead. It's a mule. It's a mules. So the nanny says that the black woman is like a mule. And then Um, first husband Logan goes out to buy a mule so that she can work the land and that's that's like the inciting incident that makes her leave exactly because that's not I mean that's yeah that's that's using her beyond even what a regular husband would do to Mm. his wife right that's that's not women's work Mm. and you can imagine that striking a
0: chord with her because her grandmother had told her we're mules and then he's saying you're going to drive the mule you know
1: I am going to predict that there, that the mule thing will come up again with Joe in an even more dire way. Oh. That's what I think will happen. I'm so hold me to that. If I'm wrong, I'm going to be embarrassed, but I think it will.
0: Well, I mean, it's a pretty good prediction, even if it doesn't come true. Like, yeah, it's a strong yeah. prediction. <laughs> well, we should wrap it up. Um, and making go ahead, predictions Tim. on this show. It's, I, I Never think it's kind go of wrong. fun.
2: I mean, no, really, really. It's, it, it's fun because I think our experience on the show is you make a prediction and you get about like 75% of it. Right. You know, (laughs) I'm thinking about Rebecca. I think maybe I was like less than 50% right, but it's still fun to see like, Oh yeah, I, I had a notion of where it was going. Hmm. Didn't quite go in that direction, but I think those kind of speculations are really
1: enjoyable. They are fun. Well, that's mine.
0: Well, now that we're done speculating for at least this week, We should probably go. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.